The Box of Robbers by L. Frank Baum No one intended to leave Martha alone that afternoon, but it happened that everyone was called away for one reason or another. Miss McFarland was attending the weekly card party held by the Women's Anti-Gambling League. Sister Nell's young man had called quite unexpectedly to take her for a long drive. Papa was at the office, as usual. It was Mary Ann's day out. As for Emmeline, she certainly should have stayed in the house and looked after the little girl. But Emmeline had a restless nature. Would you mind, miss, if I just cross the alley to speak a word to Miss Carlton's girl? She asked Martha. Of course not, replied the child. You'd better lock the back door, though, and take the key, for I shall be upstairs. Oh, I'll do that, of course, miss, said the delighted maid, and ran away to spend the afternoon with her friend, leaving Martha quite alone in the big house and locked in. in her new book, sewed a few stitches in her embroidery, and started to play visiting with her four favorite dolls. Then she remembered that in the attic was a doll's playhouse that hadn't been used for months, so she decided she would dust it and put it in order. Filled with this idea, the girl climbed the winding stairs to the big room under the roof. It was well lighted by three dormer windows and was warm and pleasant. Around the walls were rows of boxes and trunks, piles of old carpeting, Pieces of damaged furniture, bundles of discarded clothing, and other odds and ends of more or less value. Every well-regulated house has an attic of this sort, so I need not describe it. The doll's house had been moved, but after a search, Martha found it away over in a corner near the big chimney. She drew it out and noticed that behind it was a black wooden chest which Uncle Walter had sent over from Italy years ago before Martha was born, in fact. Mama had told her about it one day, how there was no key to it because Uncle Walter wished it to remain unopened until he returned home, and how this wandering uncle 
who was a mighty hunter, had gone into Africa to hunt elephants, and had never been heard from afterwards. The little girl looked at the chest curiously, now that it had, by accident, attracted her attention. It was quite big, bigger even than Mama's traveling trunk, and was studded all over with tarnished brass-headed nails. It was heavy, too, for when Martha tried to lift one end of it, she found she could not stir it a bit. But there was a place in the side of the cover for a key. She stooped to examine the lock and saw that it would take a rather big key to open it. Then, as you may suspect, the little girl longed to open Uncle Walter's big box and see what was in it. But we are all curious are just as curious as the rest of us. I don't believe Uncle Walter will ever be back, she thought. Papa said once that some elephant must have killed him. If only I had a key. She stopped and clapped her little hands together gaily as she remembered a big basket of keys on the shelf in the linen closet. They were of all sorts and sizes. Perhaps one of them would unlock the mysterious chest. She flew down the stairs, found the basket, and returned with it to the attic. Then she sat down before the brass-studded box and began trying one key after another in the curious old lock. Some were too large, but most were too small. One would go into the lock but would not turn. Another stuck so fast that she feared for a time that she would never get it out again. But at last, when the basket was almost empty, an oddly shaped ancient brass key slipped easily into the lock. With a cry of joy, Martha turned the key with both hands. Then she heard a sharp click, and the next moment the heavy lid flew up on its own accord. The little girl leaned over the edge of the chest for an instant, and the sight that met her eyes caused her to start back in amazement. Slowly and carefully, a man unpacked himself from the chest, stepped out upon the floor, stretched his limbs, and then took off his hat and bowed politely to the astonished child. He was tall and thin 
his face seemed badly tanned or sunburned. Then another man emerged from the chest, yawning and rubbing his eyes like a sleepy schoolboy. He was of middle size, and his skin seemed as badly tanned as that of the first. While Martha stared open-mouthed at the remarkable sight, a third man crawled from the chest. He had the same complexion as his fellows, but he was short and fat. All three were dressed in a curious manner. They wore short jackets of red velvet braided with gold and knee breeches of sky-blue satin with silver buttons. Over their stockings were laced wide ribbons of red and yellow and blue, while their hats had broad brims with high-peaked crowns from which fluttered yards of bright-colored ribbons. They had big gold rings in their ears and rows of knives and pistols in their belts. Their eyes were black and glittering, and they wore long, fierce mustaches curling at the ends like a pig's tail. My, but you were heavy, exclaimed the fat one when he pulled down his velvet jacket and brushed the dust from his sky-blue breeches. And you squeezed me all out of shape. It was unavoidable, Luigi, responded the thin man lightly. The lid of the chest pressed me down upon you, yet I tender you my regrets. As for me, said the middle-sized man, carelessly rolling a cigarette and lighting it. You must acknowledge I have been your nearest friend for years, so do not be disagreeable. You mustn't smoke in the attic, said Martha, recovering herself at the sight of the cigarette. You might set the house on fire. The middle-sized man, who had not noticed her before, at this speech, turned to the girl and bowed. Since a lady requests it, said he, I shall abandon my cigarette. And he threw it on the floor and extinguished it with his foot. Who are you? asked Martha, who until now had been too astonished to be frightened. Permit us to introduce ourselves, said the thin man, flourishing his hat gracefully. This is Luigi, the fat man nodded, and this is Benny, the middle-sized man bowed, and I am Victor. We are three bandits, Italian bandits. 
it,' cried Martha, with a look of horror. "'Exactly. Perhaps in all the world there are not three other bandits so terrible and fierce as ourselves,' said Victor proudly. "'Tis so,' said the fat man, nodding gravely. "'But it's wicked,' exclaimed Martha. "'Yes, indeed,' replied Victor. "'We are extremely and tremendously wicked. "'Perhaps in all the world you could not find three men "'more wicked than those who now stand before you.' "'Tis so,' said the fat man approvingly. But you shouldn't be so wicked, said the girl. It's, it's, it's naughty. Victor cast down his eyes and blushed. Naughty, gasped Benny with a horrified look. Tis a hard word, said Luigi, sadly and buried his face in his hands. I little thought, murmured Victor, in a voice broken by emotion, ever to be so reviled, and by a lady. Yet perhaps you spoke thoughtlessly. You must consider, miss, that our wickedness as an excuse. For how are we to be bandits, let me ask, unless we are wicked? Martha was puzzled and shook her head thoughtfully. Then she remembered something. You can't remain bandits any longer, said she, because you are now in America. America, cried the three bandits together. Certainly, you are on Prairie Avenue in Chicago. Uncle Walter sent you here from Italy in this chest. The bandits seemed greatly bewildered by this announcement. Luigi sat down on an old chair with a broken rocker and wiped his forehead with a yellow silk handkerchief. Benny and Victor fell back upon the chest and looked at her with pale faces and staring eyes. When he had somewhat recovered himself, Victor spoke. Your uncle has greatly wronged us, he said reproachfully. He has taken us from our beloved Italy, where bandits are highly respected, and brought us to a strange country where we shall not know whom to rob or how much to ask for a ransom. Tis so, said the fat man, slapping his leg sharply. And we had 
had such fine reputations in Italy, said Benny regretfully. Perhaps Uncle Walter wanted to reform you, suggested Martha. Are there then no bandits in Chicago? asked Victor. Well, replied the girl, blushing in her turn. Don't call them bandits. Then what shall we do for a living? inquired Benny despairingly. A great deal can be done in a big American city, said the child. My father is a lawyer, the bandits shuddered, and my mother's cousin is a police inspector. Ah, said Victor, that is good employment. The police need to be inspected, especially in Italy. Everywhere, added Benny. Then you could do other things, continued Martha encouragingly. You could be motormen on trolley cars or clerks in a department store. Some people even become aldermen to earn a living. The bandits shook their heads sadly. We are not fitted for such work, said Victor. Our business is to rob. Martha tried to think. It is rather hard to get positions in the gas office, she said. But you might become politicians. No, cried Benny with sudden fierceness. We must not abandon our high calling. Bandits we have always been, and bandits we must remain. Is so, agreed the fat man. Even in Chicago, there must be people to rob, remarked Victor with cheerfulness. Martha was distressed. I think they have all been robbed, she objected. Then we can rob the robbers, for we have experience and talent beyond the ordinary, said Benny. Oh dear, oh dear, moaned the girl. Why did Uncle Walter ever send you here in this chest? The bandits became interested. That is what we should like to know, declared Victor eagerly. But no one will ever know, for Uncle Walter was lost while hunting elephants in Africa. She continued with conviction. Then we must accept our fate and rob the best of our ability, said Victor, so long as we are faithful to 
about the profession, you need not be shamed. Tis so, cried the fat man. Brothers, we will begin now. Let us rob the house we are in. Good, shouted the others, and sprang to their feet. Benny turned threateningly upon the child. Remain here, he commanded. If you stir one step, your blood will be on your own head. Then he added in a gentler voice, Don't be afraid. That's just the way all bandits talk to their captives. But of course we wouldn't hurt a young lady under any circumstances. Of course not, said Victor. Bananas, cried Benny, in a terrible voice. Confusion to our foes, hissed Victor. And then the three bent themselves nearly double and crept stealthily down the stairway with cocked pistols in their hands and glittering knives between their teeth leaving Martha trembling with fear and too horrified to even cry for help. How long she remained alone in the attic, she never knew, but finally she heard the cat-like tread of the returning bandits and saw them coming up the stairs in single file. All bore heavy loads of plunder in their arms, and Luigi was balancing a mince pie on the top of a pile of her mother's best evening dresses. Victor came next with an armful of bric-a-brac, a brass candelabra, and the parlor clock. Benny had the family Bible, the basket of silverware from the sideboard, a copper kettle, and Papa's fur overcoat. Oh, joy, said Victor, putting down his load. It is pleasant to rob once more. Oh, ecstasy, said Benny, but he let the kettle drop on his toe and immediately began dancing around in anguish while he muttered strange words in the Italian language. We have much wealth, continued Victor, holding the mince pie while Luigi added his spoils to the heap, and all from one house. This America must be a rich place. He then cut himself a piece of the pie and handed the remainder to his comrades, whereupon all three sat upon the floor and consumed the pie while Martha looked on sadly. We should have a cave, remarked Benny, but we must store our plunder in a safe place. Can you tell us, tell us of a secret cave? He asked Martha. There's a mammoth cave, she answered, but it's in Kentucky. You would be obliged to ride on the cars a long time to get there. The three 
bandits looked thoughtful and munched their pie silently. But the next moment they were startled by the ringing of the electric doorbell, which was heard plainly even in the remote attic. What's that? demanded Victor in a hoarse voice as the three scrambled to their feet with drawn daggers. Martha ran to the window and saw it was only the postman who had dropped a letter in the box and gone away again. But the incident gave her an idea of how to get rid of the troublesome bandits. So she began wringing her hands as if in distress and cried out, It's the police. The robbers looked at one another with genuine alarm, and Luigi asked tremblingly, Are there many of them? One hundred and twelve, exclaimed Martha, after pretending to count them. Then we are lost, declared Benny, for we could never fight so many and live. Are they armed? inquired Victor, who was shivering as if cold. Oh, yes, she said. They have guns and swords and pistols and axes and... And what? demanded Luigi. And... Cannons. The three wicked ones groaned aloud, and Benny said in a hollow voice, I hope they will kill us quickly and not put us to the torture. I have been told these Americans can be bloodthirsty and terrible. Tis so, gasped the fat man with a shudder. Suddenly, Martha turned from the window. You are my friends, are you not? She asked. We are devoted, answered Victor. We adore you, cried Benny. We would die for you, added Luigi, thinking he was about to die anyway. Then I will save you, said the girl. How? asked the three, with one voice. Get back into the chest, she said. I will then close the lid, so they won't be able to find you. They looked around the room in a dazed and irresolute way, but she exclaimed, You must be quick. They will soon be here to arrest you. Then Luigi sprang into the chest and lay flat upon the bottom. Benny tumbled in next and backed himself in the backside. Victor followed after pausing to kiss her hand to the girl in a graceful manner. Then Martha ran up to press down the lid but could not make it catch. You must squeeze down, 
she said to them. Luigi groaned. I am doing my best, miss, said Victor, who was nearest the top. But although we fitted in very nicely before, the chest now seems rather small for us. Tis so, came the muffled voice of the fat man from the bottom. I know what takes up the room, said Benny. What? inquired Victor anxiously. The pie, returned Benny. Tis so, came from the bottom in faint accents. Then Martha sat on the lid and pressed it down with all her weight. To her great delight, the lock caught and sprang down. She exerted all of her strength and turned the key. Dog by Alfred Baum, an accomplished wizard, once lived on the top floor of a tenement house and passed his time in thoughtful study and studious thought. What he didn't know about wizardry was hardly worth knowing, for he possessed all the books and recipes of all the wizards who had lived before him. And moreover, he had invented several wizardments himself. This admirable person would have been completely happy, but for the numerous interruptions to his studies caused by folk came to consult him about their troubles, in which he wasn't interested, and by the loud knocks of the Iceman, the Milkman, the Baker's Boy, the Laundry Man, and the Peanut Woman. He never dealt with any of these people. They rapped at his door every day to see him about this or that and to try to sell him their wares. But when he was most deeply interested in his books or engaged in watching the bubbling of a cauldron, there would come a knock at his door. And after sending the intruder away, was found he had lost his train of thought or ruined his compound. At length, these interruptions aroused his anger, and he decided he must have a dog to keep people away from his door. He didn't know where to find a dog, but in the next room lived a poor glassblower whom he had a slight acquaintance. So he went into the man's apartment, and he asked, 
can I find a dog? What sort of dog? inquired the glass blower. A good dog. One that will bark at people and drive them away. One that will be no trouble to keep and won't expect to be fed. One that has no fleas and is neat in his habits. One that will obey me when I speak to him. In short, a good dog, said the wizard. Such a dog is hard to find, returned the glass blower, who was busy making a blue glass flower pot with a pink glass rose bush in it, having green glass leaves and yellow glass roses. The wizard watched him thoughtfully. Why can't you blow me a dog out of glass? He asked presently. I can, declared the glass blower, but it wouldn't bark at people, you know. Oh, I'll fix that easily enough, replied the wizard. If I could not make a glass dog bark, I would be a mighty poor wizard. Very well. If you can use a glass dog, I'll be pleased to make one for you. Only, you must pay me for my work. Certainly, agreed the wizard. But I have none of that horrid stuff you call money. You must take some of my wares in exchange. The glass blower considered the matter for a moment. Could you give me something to cure my rheumatism? He asked. Oh, yes, easily. Then it's a deal. I'll start the dog at once. What color of glass shall I use? Pink is a pretty color, said the wizard. And it's unusual for a dog, isn't it? Very, answered the glass blower. But it shall be pink. So the wizard went back into his studies, and the glass blower began to make the dog. The next morning, he entered the wizard's room with the glass dog under his arm and set it carefully on the table. It was a beautiful pink in color, with a fine coat of spun glass and about its neck was a twisted blue glass ribbon. Its eyes were specks of black glass and sparkled indulgently, as do many of the glass eyes worn by men. The wizard
voice had expressed himself pleased with the glassblower's skill. And at once handed him a small vial. This will cure your rheumatism, he said. But the vial is empty, protested the glassblower. Oh no, there is one drop of liquid in it, was the wizard's reply. Will one drop cure my rheumatism? Blower in wonder. Most certainly, that is a marvelous remedy. The one drop contained in the vial will cure instantly any kind of disease ever known to humanity. Therefore, it's especially good for rheumatism. But guard it well, for it is the only drop of its kind in the world. And I've forgotten the recipe. Thank you, said the glass blower, and went back to his room. Then the wizard cast a wizzy spell and mumbled several very learned words in the wizardese language over the glass dog, whereupon the little animal first wagged its tail from side to side, then winked his left eye knowingly, and at last began barking in a most frightful manner, that is, when you stop to consider the noise came from a pink glass dog. There is something almost astonishing in the magic arts of wizards, unless, of course, you know how to do the things yourself when you're not expected to be surprised at them. The wizard was as delighted as a school teacher at the success of his spell although he was not astonished. Immediately, he placed the dog outside his door, where it would bark at anyone who dared knock, and so disturb the studies of its master. The glass blower, on returning to his room, decided not to use the one drop of wizard girl just then. is better today, he reflected, and I will be wise to save the medicine for a time when I am very ill, when it will be of more service to me. So he placed the vial in his cupboard and went to work, making more roses out of glass. Presently, he happened to think the medicine might not keep, so he started to ask the wizard about it. But when he reached the door, the glass dog barked so fiercely that he dared
knock, and he returned in great haste to his own room. Indeed, the poor man was quite upset at so unfriendly a reception from the dog he had himself so carefully and skillfully made. The next morning, as he read his newspaper, he noticed an article stating that the beautiful Miss Midas, the richest young lady in town, was very ill, and the doctors had given up hope of her recovery. The glass blower, although miserably poor, hard-working, and homely of feature, was a man of ideas. He suddenly recollected his precious medicine and determined to use it to better advantage than relieving his own ills. He dressed himself in his best clothes, brushed his hair and combed his whiskers, washed his hands, and tied his necktie, blackened his shoes, and sponged his vest, and then put the vial of magic cure-all in his pocket. Next, he locked his door, went downstairs, and walked through the streets to the grand mansion where the wealthy Miss Midas resided. The butler opened the door and said, No soap, no chromos, no vegetables, no hair oil, no books, no baking powder. My young lady is dying, and we're well supplied for the funeral. The glass blower was grieved at being taken for a peddler. My friend, he began proudly, but the butler interrupted him, saying, No tombstones either. There's a family graveyard, and the monument's built. The graveyard will be needed if you will permit me to speak, said the glass blower. No doctors, sir. They've given up my young lady, and she's given up the doctors, continued the butler calmly. I'm no doctor, returned the glass blower, nor are the others. But what is your errand? I call to cure your young lady by means of a magical compound. Step in, please, and take a seat in the hall. I'll speak to the housekeeper, said the butler more politely. So he spoke to the housekeeper, and the housekeeper mentioned the matter to the steward, and the steward consulted the chef, and the chef kissed the lady's maid and sent her to see the stranger. Thus are the very wealthy hedged around with the ceremony, even with the dying. 
when the lady's maid heard from the glass blower that he had a medicine which would cure her mistress, she said, I'm glad you came. But, said he, if I restore your mistress to health, she must marry me. I'll make inquiries and see if she's willing, answered the maid, and went at once to consult Miss Midas. The young lady did not hesitate an instant. I'd marry any old thing rather than die, she cried. Bring him here at once. So the glass blower came, poured the magic drop into a little water, gave it to the patient, and the next minute Miss Midas was as well as she'd ever been in her life. Dear me, she exclaimed, I've an engagement at the British reception tonight. Bring my pearl-colored silk, Marie, and I will begin my toilet at once. And don't forget to cancel the order of the funeral flowers in your morning gown. But Miss Midas remonstrated the glass blower who stood by. You promised to marry me. Cured you. I know, said the young lady, but we must have time to make proper announcement in the society papers and have the wedding cards engraved. Call tomorrow and we'll talk it over. The glass blower had not impressed her favorably as a husband and she was glad to find an excuse for getting rid of him for a time. And she didn't want to miss the fritter's reception. Yet, the man went home filled with joy, for he thought his strategy had succeeded, and he was about to marry a rich wife who would keep him in luxury forever afterward. The first thing he did on reaching his room was to smash his glass-blowing tools and throw them out the window. He then sat down to figure out ways of spending his wife's money. The following day, he called on Miss Midas, who was reading a novel and eating chocolate creams as an applet as if she'd never been ill in her all her life. Where did you get the magic compound that cured me? She asked. From a learned wizard, he said. And then, thinking it would interest her, he told how he'd made the glass dog for the wizard, and how it barked kept everybody from bothering him. How delightful, she said. I've always wanted a glass dog that could bark. 
but there is only one in the world, he answered, and it belongs to the wizard. You must buy it for me, said the lady. The wizard cares nothing for money, replied the glassblower. Then you must steal it for me, she retorted. I can never live happily another day unless I have a glass dog that can bark. The glass blower was much distressed at this, but said he would see what he could do, for a man should always try to please his wife, and Miss Midas has promised to marry him within a week. On his way home, he purchased a heavy sack, and when he passed the wizard's door, and the pink glass dog ran out to bark at him, he threw the sack over the dog, tied the opening with a piece of twine, and carried him away to his own room. The next day, he sent the sack by a messenger boy to Miss Midas with his compliments, and later in the afternoon, he called on her in person, feeling quite sure he would be received with gratitude for stealing the dog she so greatly desired. But when he came to the door, and the butler opened it. What was his amazement to see the glass dog rush out and begin barking at him furiously. Call off your dog, he shouted in terror. I can't, sir, answered the butler. My young lady has ordered the glass dog to bark whenever you call in your better look out, sir, he added, for if it bites you, you may have glassophobia. This so frightened the poor glassblower that he went away hurriedly, but he stopped at a drugstore and put his last dime in the telephone box so he could talk to Miss Midas without being bitten by the dog. Give me Belf 6742, he called. Hello, what is it? said a voice. I want to speak with Miss Midas, said the glassblower. Presently, a sweet voice said, this is Miss Midas. What is it? Why have you treated me so cruelly and set the glass dog on me? asked the poor fellow. Well, to tell the truth, said the lady, I don't like your looks. Your cheeks are pale and baggy. Your hair is coarse and long, 
Your eyes are small and red. Your hands are big and rough. And you are bow-legged. But I can't help my looks, pleaded the glass blower. And you really promised to marry me. If you were better looking, I'd keep my promise, she returned. But under the circumstances, you are no fit mate for me. And unless you keep away from my mansion, I shall set my glass dog on you. Then she dropped the phone and would have nothing more to say. The miserable glass blower went home with a heart bursting with disappointment. At home, someone knocked on his door, and upon opening it, he saw the wizard. I've lost my dog, he announced. Have you? Indeed, replied the glass blower. Yes, someone has stolen him. That's too bad, declared the glass blower indifferently. You must make me another, said the wizard. But I can't. I've thrown away all my tools. Then what shall I do? asked the wizard. I don't know. Maybe offer a reward for the dog. But I have no money, said the wizard. Offer some of your compounds then suggested the glass blower. The only thing I can spare, replied the wizard thoughtfully, is a beauty powder. What? cried the glass blower. Have you really such a thing? Yes, indeed. Whoever takes the powder become the most beautiful person in the world. If you will offer that as a reward, said the glass blower eagerly, I'll try to find the dog for you, for above everything else, I long to be beautiful. But I warn you, the beauty will only be skin deep, said the wizard. That's all right, replied the happy glass blower. When I lose my skin, I shan't care to remain beautiful. Then tell me where to find my dog, and you shall have the powder, promised the wizard. So the glass blower went out and pretended to search, and by and by, turned and said, I've discovered the dog. You will find him in the mansion of Miss Midas. The 
wizard wanted once to see if this were true. And sure enough, the glass dog ran out and began barking at him. Then the wizard spread out his hands and chanted a magic spell, which sent the dog fast asleep. When he picked him up and carried him to his own room on the top floor of the tenement house, Afterward, he carried the beauty powder to the glass blower as a reward, and the fellow immediately swallowed it and became the most beautiful man in the world. The next time he called upon Miss Midas, there was no dog to bark at him, and when the young lady saw him, she fell in love with his beauty at once. If only you were a count or a prince, she sighed, I'd willingly marry you. But I am a prince, he answered. The prince of glass blowers. Ah, said she, and if you are willing to accept an allowance of four dollars a week, I'll order the wedding cards engraved. The man hesitated, but he consented to the terms. So they were married, and the bride was very jealous of her husband's beauty and led him a dog's life. So, he managed to get into debt and made her miserable in turn. The End The Girl Who Owned a Bear by L. Frank Baum Jane's mother had gone downtown to shop. She'd asked Nora to look after Jane, and Nora promised she would. But it was her afternoon for polishing the silver, so she stayed in the pantry and left Jane to amuse herself alone in the big sitting room upstairs. The little girl didn't mind being alone, she was working on her first piece of embroidery, a sofa pillow for Papa's birthday present. So she crept into the big bay window and curled herself up on the broad sill while she bent her brown head over her work. Soon the door opened and closed again quietly. Jane thought it was Nora so she didn't look up until she had taken a couple more stitches on a forget-me-not. Then she raised her eyes and was astonished to find a strange man in the middle of the room who regarded her earnestly. He was short and overweight and seemed to be breathing heavily from his climb up the stairs. 
he held a work silk hat in one hand, and underneath his other elbow was tucked a good-sized book. He was dressed in a black suit that looked old and rather shabby, and his head was bald on the top. Excuse me, he said, while the child gazed at him in solemn surprise. Are you Jane Brown? Yes, sir, she answered. Very good, very good indeed, he remarked with a queer sort of smile. I've had quite a time finding you, but I've succeeded at last. How did you get in? inquired Jane, with a growing distrust of her visitor. That is a secret, he said mysteriously. This was enough to put the girl on her guard. She looked at the man the man looked at her, and both looks were grave and somewhat anxious. What do you want? she asked, straightening herself up with a dignified air. Ah, uh, now we're coming to business, said the man briskly. I'm going to be quite frank with you. Begin with, your father has wronged me in a most ungentlemanly manner. Jane got off the window sill and pointed her small finger at the door. Leave this room immediately, she stated. My papa is the best man in the world. He never wronged anybody. Allow me to explain, please, said the visitor, without paying any attention to her request to go away. Your father may be very kind to you, for you are his little girl, you know. But when he's downtown, in his office, he's inclined to be rather severe, especially on book agents. Now, I called on him the other day and asked him to buy the complete works of Peter Smith. And what do you suppose he did? She said nothing. Well, continued the man with growing excitement, he ordered me from his office and had me put out of the building by the janitor. What do you think of such treatment as that from the best papa in the world? I think he was quite right, said Jane. Oh, you do? Well, said the man. I resolved to be revenged for the insult. So, as your father is big and strong and a dangerous man, I have decided to get my vengeance in a roundabout way. What are you going to do? 
she asked. I'm going to present you with this book. He answered, taking it from under his arm. Then he sat down on the edge of a chair, placed his hat on the rug, and drew a fountain pen from his vest pocket. I'll write your name in it, he said. How do you spell Jane? J-A-N-E, of course, she replied. Thank you. Now this, he continued, rising and handing her the book with a bow, is my revenge for your father's treatment of me. Perhaps he'll be sorry he didn't buy the complete works of Peter Smith. Goodbye. He walked to the door, gave her another bow, and left the room. And Jane could see that he was laughing to himself, as if very much amused. When the door had closed behind the queer little man, the child sat down in the window again and glanced at the book. It had a red and yellow cover and the word thingamajigs was across the front in big letters. Then she opened it curiously and saw her name written in black letters on the first white leaf. He was a funny little man, she said to herself thoughtfully. She turned the next leaf and saw a big picture of a clown dressed in green and red and yellow and having a very white face with three cornered spots of red on each cheek and over the eyes. While she looked at this book, trembled in her hands, the leaf crackled and creaked, and suddenly the clown jumped out of it and stood on the floor beside her, becoming instantly as big as any ordinary clown. After stretching his arms and legs and yawning in a rather impolite manner, he gave a silly chuckle and said, This is better. You don't know how cramped one gets standing so long on a page of flat paper. Perhaps you can imagine how startled Jane was and how she stared at the clown who had just leaped out of the book. You didn't expect anything of this sort, did you? He asked, looking at her in a clown fashion. Then he turned around to take a look at the room, and Jane laughed in spite of her astonishment. What amuses you? asked the clown. Why, the back of you is all white, cried the girl. <laughs> 
likely, he returned in an annoyed tone. The artist made a front view of me. He wasn't expected to make the back of me, for that was against the page of the book. But it makes you look so funny, said Jane, laughing until her eyes were moist with tears. The clown looked sulky and sat down on a chair so she couldn't see his back. I'm not the only thing in the book, he remarked crossly. This reminded her to turn another page, and she had scarcely noted that it contained the picture of a monkey when the animal sprang from the book with a great crumpling of paper and landed on the window seat beside her. The monkey chattered a lovely sound, springing to the girl's shoulder and then to the center table. This is great fun. Now I can be a real monkey instead of a picture of one. Real monkeys can't talk, said Jane. How do you know? Have you ever been one yourself? Inquired the monkey. And then he laughed loudly. And the clown laughed too, as if he also enjoyed the remark. quite bewildered by this time. She thoughtlessly turned another page, and before she had time to look twice, a gray donkey leaped from the book and stumbled from the window seat to the floor with a great clatter. You're clumsy enough for sure, said the child, for the beast had nearly toppled her over. Clumsy, and why not? demanded the donkey with an angry voice. If the fool artist had drawn you out of perspective as he did me, I guess you'd be clumsy yourself. What's wrong with you? asked Jane. My front and rear legs on the left side are nearly six inches too short. That's what's the matter. If that artist didn't know how to draw properly, why did he try to make a donkey at all? I don't know, replied the child, seeing an answer was expected. I can hardly stand up grumbled the donkey, and the least little thing will topple me over. Don't mind that, said the monkey, making a spring at the chandelier and swinging from it by his tail until Jane feared he would knock all the globes off. That same artist has made my ears as big as that clown's and everyone knows a monkey hasn't any ears to speak of, much less to draw. He should be prosecuted, remarked the clown gloomily, 
says, I smack my lips and glory in my wickedness. 
That's awful, said the donkey, sitting on his haunches and shaking his head sadly. Do you eat animals also? The author doesn't mention that, so I'm unsure, replied the bear. Very good, remarked the clown, drawing a long breath of relief. You may begin snacking on Jane as soon as you wish. She laughed because I had no back, and she laughed because my legs are out of perspective, prayed the donkey. But you also deserve to be eaten, screamed the leopard from the back of the leather chair, for you laughed and poked fun at me because I had no claws nor teeth. Don't you suppose, Mr. Grizzly, you could manage to eat a clown, a donkey, and a monkey? Perhaps so, and a leopard into the bargain, growled the bear. It will depend on how hungry I am. Jane was much frightened on hearing this conversation, and she began to realize what the man meant when he said he gave her the book to be revenged. Surely Papa would be sorry he hadn't bought the complete works of Peter Smith when he came home and found a bear, but not his daughter. The bear stood up and balanced himself on his rear legs. This is the way I look in the book, he said. Now watch me eat you all. He advanced slowly toward Jane, the monkey, the leopard, the donkey, and the clown. But before the grizzly reached her, the child had a sudden thought and cried out, Stop. You mustn't eat us. It would be wrong. Why? asked the bear in surprise. Because I own you. You're my private property, she answered. I don't see how you make that out, said the bear in a disappointed tone. Why, the book was given to me. My name's on the front leaf, and you belong by rights in the book. So, you mustn't dare to eat your owner. The grizzly hesitated. Can any of you read? He asked. I can, said the clown. Then see if she speaks the truth. Is her name really in the book? The clown picked it up and looked at the name. It is, 
said. J-A-N-E. Jane. And written quite plainly in big letters. The bear sighed. Then of course I can't eat her. He decided. That author is as disappointing as most authors are. But he's not as bad as the artist, exclaimed the donkey, who was still trying to stand up straight. The fault lies with yourselves, said Jane severely. Why didn't you stay in the book where you were put? The animals looked at each other in a foolish way, and the clown blushed under his white paint. Really? began the bear, and then he stopped short. The doorbell rang loudly. It's Mama, cried Jane, springing to her feet. She's come home at last. Now you silly creatures. But she was interrupted by them all making a rush for the book. There was a swish, and a whir, and a rustling of leaves. And an instant later, the book lay on the floor, looking just like any other book. Jane's strange companions had all disappeared. This is the end of the story. The Enchanted Types by L. Frank Baum One time a nook became tired of his beautiful life, and he longed for something new to do. The nooks have more wonderful powers than any other mortal folk, except perhaps the fairies and riles. So one would suppose that a nook who might gain anything he desired by a simple wish could not be otherwise than happy and contented such was not the case for Popo, the nook we are speaking of. He had lived thousands of years, and had enjoyed all the wonders he could think of. Yet, life had become as tedious to him now as it might to one who has been unable to gratify a single wish. Finally, by chance, Popo thought of the earth people who dwell in cities, and so he resolved to visit them and see how they lived. This would surely be fine amusement, and serve to pass away many wearisome hours. Therefore, one morning, after a breakfast so dainty that you could scarcely imagine it, Popo set out for the earth and at once was in the midst of a big city. His own dwelling was so quiet and peaceful that the roaring noise of the town startled him. 
His nerves were so shocked that before he had looked around three minutes, he decided to give up the adventure and instantly returned home. This satisfied, for a time, his desire to visit the Earth cities. But soon the monotony of his existence again made him restless and gave him another thought. At night, the people slept and the cities would be quiet. He would visit them at night. So at the proper time, Popo transported himself in a jiffy to a great city, where he began wandering about the streets. Everyone was in bed. No wagons rattled along the pavements. No throngs of busy men shouted and hallowed. Even the policemen slumbered slyly, and there happened to be no prowling thieves abroad. His nerves being soothed by the stillness, Popo began to enjoy himself. He entered many of the houses and examined their rooms with much curiosity. Locks and bolts made no difference to a nook, and he saw as well in darkness as in daylight. After a time, he strolled into the business portion of the city. Stores are unknown among the immortals who have no need for money or barter or exchange. So Popo was greatly interested by the novel sight of so many collections of goods and merchandise. During his wanderings, he entered a hat shop and was surprised to see within a large glass case a great number of women's hats, each bearing in one position or another a stuffed bird. Indeed, some of the most elaborate hats had two or three birds upon them. Now nooks are the especial guardians of birds and love them dearly. To see so many of his little friends shut up in a glass case, annoyed and grieved Popo, who had no idea they had purposely been placed upon the hats by the hat maker. So he slid back one of the doors of the case, gave the little chirruping whistle of the nooks that all birds know well, and called. Come, friends, the door is open. Fly out. Popo didn't know the birds were stuffed, but, stuffed or not, every bird is bound to obey a nook's whistle and a nook's call. So they left the hats, flew out of the case, and began fluttering about the room. Poor dears, said the kind-hearted nook. You long to be in the fields and forests again. Then he opened the outer door for them and cried, Off with you, fly away, my beauties, and be happy again. 
the astonished birds at once obeyed, and when they had soared away into the night air, the nook closed the door and continued his wandering through the streets. By dawn, he saw many interesting sights, but day broke before he had finished the city, and resolved to come the next evening a few hours earlier. As soon as it was dark the following day, he came again to the city, and on passing the hat shop noticed a light within. Entering, he found two women, one of whom leaned her head upon the table and sobbed bitterly, while the other strove to comfort her. Of course, Popo was invisible to mortal eyes, so he stood by and listened to their conversation. Cheer up, sister, said one. Even though your pretty birds have all been stolen, the hats themselves remain. Alas, cried the other, who was the hat maker, no one will buy my hats partly trimmed, for the fashion is to wear birds upon them. And if I cannot sell my goods, I shall be utterly ruined. Then she renewed her sobbing, and the nook stole away, feeling a little ashamed to realize that in his love for the birds, he had unconsciously wronged one of the earth people and made her unhappy. This thought brought him back to the hat shop later in the night when the two women had gone home. He wanted in some way to replace the birds upon the hats that the poor woman might be happy again. So he searched until he came upon a nearby cellar full of little gray mice who lived quite undisturbed and gained a livelihood by gnawing through the walls into neighboring houses and stealing food from the pantries. Here are just the creatures, thought Popo, to place upon the woman's hats. Their fur is almost as soft as the plumage of the birds, and it strikes me the mice are remarkably pretty and graceful animals. Moreover, they now passed their lives in stealing, and were they obliged to remain always upon women's hats, their morals would be much improved. So we exercised a charm that drew all the mice from the cellar and placed them on the hats in the glass case, where they occupied the places the birds had vacated and looked very becoming at least in the eyes of the unworldly nook. To prevent their running about and leaving the hats, Popo rendered them motionless, and then he was so pleased with his work that he decided to remain in the shop and witness the delight of the hat maker when she saw how daintily her hats were now trimmed. 
she came in the early morning, accompanied by her sister, and her face wore a sad and resigned expression. After sweeping and dusting the shop and drawing the blinds, she opened the glass case and took out a hat. But she saw a tiny gray mouse nesting among the ribbons and laces. She gave a loud shriek and, dropping the hat, sprang with one bound to the top of the table. The sister, knowing the shriek to be one of fear, leaped on a chair and exclaimed, What is it? Oh, what is it? A mouse, gasped the hat maker, trembling with terror. Popo, seeing this commotion, now realized that mice are especially disagreeable to human beings, and that he had made a grave mistake in placing them on the hats. So he gave a low whistle of command that was heard only by the mice. Instantly, they all jumped from the hats, dashed out the open door of the glass case, and scampered away to their cellar. But this action so frightened the hat maker and her sister that after giving several loud screams, they fell on their backs on the floor and fainted away. Popo was a kind-hearted nook, but on witnessing all this misery, caused by his own ignorance of the ways of humans, he straightway wished himself at home, and so left the poor women to recover as best they could. Yet he could not escape a sad feeling of responsibility, and after thinking on the matter, he decided that since he had caused the hat-maker's unhappiness by freeing the birds, he could set the matter right by restoring the birds to the glass case. He loved the birds and disliked to condemn them to slavery again, but that seemed the only way to end the trouble. So he set off to find the birds. They had flown a long distance, but it was nothing to Popo to reach them in a second, and he discovered them sitting on the branches of a big chestnut tree and singing happily. When they saw the nook, the birds cried, Thank you, Popo. Thank you for setting us free. Don't thank me, returned the nook. I've come back to send you back to the hat shop. Why? demanded a blue jay, angrily, while the others stopped their songs. Because I find the woman considers you her property, and your loss has caused her much unhappiness, answered Popo. Remember how unhappy we were in her glass case, said a robin redbreast gravely. 
and as for being your property, you're a nook and the natural guardian of all birds, so you know that nature created us free. To be sure, wicked men shot and stuffed us and sold us to the hat maker, but the idea of our being our property is nonsense. Popo was puzzled. If I leave you free, he said, wicked men will shoot you again, and you'll be no better off than you were before. Pooh, exclaimed the blue jay, we cannot be shot now, for we are stuffed. Indeed, two men fired several shots at us this morning, but the bullets only ruffled our feathers and buried themselves in our stuffing. We don't fear men now. Listen, said Popo sternly, for he felt the birds were getting the best of the argument. The poor hat-maker's business will be ruined if I don't return you to her shop. It seems you are necessary to trim the hats properly. It is the fashion for women to wear birds on the headgear. So the poor hat-maker's wares, although beautified by lace and ribbons, are worthless unless you are perched on them. Fashions, said a blackbird solemnly, are made by men. What law is there among birds or nooks that requires us to be the slaves of fashion? What have we to do with fashions anyway? screamed a finch. If it were a fashion to wear nooks perched on women's hats, would you be contented to stay there? Answer me that, Popo. But Popo was in despair. He could not wrong the birds by sending them back to the hat-maker. Nor did he wish the hat-maker to suffer by their loss. So he went home to think what could be done. After much meditation, he decided to consult the king of the nooks, and going at once to his majesty, he told him the whole story. The king frowned. This should teach you the folly of interfering with earth people, he said. But since you've caused all this trouble, it is your duty to remedy it. Our birds cannot be enslaved, that is certain. Therefore you must have the fashions changed, so it will no longer be stylish for women to wear birds on their hats. How shall I do that? asked Popo. Easily enough, fashions often change among the earth people who tire quickly of any one thing. When they read in their newspapers and magazines that the style is so-and-so, 
They never questioned the matter, but at once obeyed the mandate of fashion. So, you must visit the newspapers and magazines and enchant the types. Enchant the types, echoed Popo in wonder. Yeah, just make them read that it is no longer the fashion to wear birds on hats. That will afford relief to your poor hat maker, and at the same time set free thousands of our darling birds who've been so cruelly used. Popo thanked the wise king and followed his advice. The office of every newspaper and magazine in the city was visited by the nook, and then he went to other cities until there was not a publication of land that had not a new fashion note in its pages. Sometimes Popo enchanted the types so that whoever read the print would see only what the nook wished them to. Sometimes he called on the busy editors and befuddled their brains until they wrote exactly what he wanted them to. Mortals seldom know how greatly they are influenced by fairies, nooks, and riles, who often put thoughts into their heads that only the wise little mortals could have conceived. The following morning, when the poor hat-maker looked over her newspaper, she was overjoyed to read that. No woman could now wear a bird on her hat and be in style, for the newest fashion required only ribbons and laces. Popo now found much enjoyment in visiting every hat shop he could and giving new life to the stuffed birds, which were carelessly tossed aside as useless. And these birds flew to the fields and forests with songs of thanks to the good nook who had rescued them. This is the end of the story. I hope you are deeply relaxed. Or even better, deeply asleep. Good night. Sleep well. <laughs>